Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you to please rate, review, subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to it right now. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch available at poppantheonpod.com. And of course, join our Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access, where we're deliver at least three bonus episodes of this show per month. That is available at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Also, gorgeous, gorgeous, My Queer Pop Party is having its next installment in LA tomorrow night, September 29th at Resident in downtown. So I hope to see you guys there. The ticket link is in the show notes of this episode. And we just announced that Gorgeous Gorgeous is doing Halloween in Brooklyn. So we will be at the Sultan Room on October 27th for a Halloween party and tickets for that will also be available in the show notes of this episode. So many gorgeous gorgeouses. And then also speaking of gorgeous gorgeous, on November 2nd, we of course have Pop Pantheon's first live show, which is called Pop Pantheon Live, Britney's Memoir, Music, and Legacy at the Crawford in Pasadena, where we will also be doing a gorgeous, gorgeous install. This one will be Britney-themed in the parking lot after the show. So if you want to come to Pop Pantheon Live at the Crawford and to Gorgeous, Gorgeous, Britney edition right after the show, the ticket link for that, my friends, will also be in the show notes of this episode. Everything's also available in our bios on social media. All right, so this week we're picking up on an episode about a very contemporarily relevant and red hot pop figure Doja Cat who released her fourth studio album Scarlet just last week and we're getting into her rise why she exists as one of the most emblematic contemporary pop figures and all of the different aspects of her artistry and her online persona and of course all the crazy controversy she's gotten into recently squabbling with her fans etc etc we talk about it all I want to say that we are also going to be talking about Scarlet in depth on our Patreon show. That is out right now, actually. It comes out simultaneously to this. So if you want to hear thoughts on Scarlet, a dissection of Scarlet with myself and Pop Pantheon fave Rawia Khmer, you can subscribe to our Patreon channel at patreon.com slash poppantheon to hear that episode. We're not going to be getting into Scarlet in depth here. We're going to be talking about the rest of Doja Cat's career like up until the release of that album. So anyway, without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon Doja Cat. In a lot of ways, Doja Cat is a walking contradiction. Of course, she's both a rapper and a singer who can switch adroitly on a dime, sometimes within the context of a single verse, between ferocious, zany bars and cooing, delicate vocals. She's a thoroughly modern pop cultural phenomenon, one who arose through SoundCloud and who frequently uses the internet as a means of candidly, sometimes too candidly, communicating with her fans, warts, feet, and all. At the same time as she's one of the last true showman pop stars, an onstage powerhouse and master of Jacksonian-style choreography and performance gloss. She's a true eccentric, thoroughly bizarre and often unpredictable, but one who has historically funneled those gonzo instincts through some of the most glistening, straightforward, bulletproof pop hits of recent times. She's sophisticated and juvenile, nonchalant and virtuosic, cuddly and prickly, funny and a little bit frightening, fully contemporary and a total throwback. But one thing that unites it all is that Doja Cat, in the last few years, has certainly emerged as one of the most consistently dynamic and thoroughly entertaining, both on and off record, pop figures at work today. 
Amala Lamini was born in 1995 in Los Angeles. Her mother is a graphic designer, and her father is a South African dancer and actor who Doja has said was not present during much of her upbringing. She spent her early childhood in Westchester, New York before, at age eight, her family joined a commune in the Santa Monica Mountains led by spiritual leader and jazz legend Alice Coltrane. At the commune, Doja practiced Hinduism and learned classical Indian dance. After a few years, her family relocated to Oak Park, an upper middle class suburb of LA, where Doja got into breakdancing and competed in competitions around the city while attending a performing arts high school. At age 16, she dropped out to pursue a career in music, teaching herself to rap, sing, and use GarageBand. And in 2012, she uploaded a spacey alt R&B ditty called So High to SoundCloud. The song organically caught on on the platform, collecting hundreds of thousands of streams and eventually getting the attention of the super producer Dr. Luke, then the hottest hitmaker in pop, who signed Doja to his label Kimasabi Records when she was just 17 years old. In summer 2014, she released her first EP, Purr, a collection of laid-back stoner R&B songs where she employed both her formidable rapping and singing abilities, albeit in a nascent form. The EP got positive buzz, but failed to launch Doja into the pop market, and she soon found herself in creative limbo, suffering from writer's block and ignored by her label. She didn't return with another major commercial release for four years, when, in 2018, she released her debut album, Amala, a record Doja has publicly disavowed as a label obligation. The album failed to generate a ton of commercial heat until, five months after its release, she uploaded a DIY music video for a novelty joke track not featured on the album called Moo to YouTube. Shot on a green screen in her childhood bedroom, the video featured Doja dressed up as both a cow and a farmer, eating a cheeseburger, and dancing in front of jiggling anime breasts, often with fries up her nostrils. The song itself is a hilarious puerile nonsense nursery rap built around the refrain, bitch, I'm a cow. Both the track and the visual were the stuff of meme dreams and quickly went viral, garnering 5 million views in two weeks and serving as most listeners' introduction to Doja, albeit one that obscured many of her formidable skills. Bitch, I'm a cow. Bitch, I'm a cow. I'm not a cat. I don't say meow. Bitch, I'm a cow. Bitch, I'm a cow. Bitch, I'm a cow. Bitch, I'm a cow. Go The strange success of Moo helped propel a reissue of Amala to gold status, but it also brought newfound attention to Doja as a celebrity and longtime creature of the internet. When old tweets surfaced featuring, among other things, her casual use of the F-slur, Doja apologized and then very publicly retracted that apology, instead doubling down and establishing another key element of her singular public persona, the edgelord and provocateur who refuses to play by the traditional pop star PR game and doesn't shy away from controversy. A few months later, Doja recruited Tyga for a remix of another track from the reissue of Amala, the frothy, bouncy, pop-rap Dr. Luke-produced confection Juicy, which was subsequently repackaged as the lead single from her sophomore album, 2019's Hot Pink. Juicy marked Doja's first entry on the Hot 100, and while it only peaked at number 41, it went on to be certified triple platinum. Crafted with the intent of showcasing the breadth of her sizable and diverse talents, and earning Doja more respect as an artist and performer following her rise as a goofy meme, Hot Pink featured a 
wide array of styles, from disco to funk to pop punk, trap, and dense R&B, all finished with a shimmering polish and utterly sticky hooks. The album produced a number of hits, including the Blink-182 come R&B track Bottom Bitch, the Slinky Rules, the Gucci Mane featuring Bobble Like That, and the TikTok phenom Streets. But it was the fifth single, the Dr. Luke produced disco homage Say So, which turned Doja into an A-lister. During the first half of 2020, Say So shot up the charts on the back of a viral dance and a larger disco revival in pop, landing at number five on the Hot 100 before a remix featuring Nicki Minaj supercharged its ascent to number one. The record went six times platinum and landed Doja her first Grammy nominations for both Best Pop, Solo Performance, and Record of the Year. Between the release of Hot Pink and her follow-up 2021's Planet Her, Doja delivered guest features on a parade of singles and remixes, collaborating with everyone from The Weeknd to Ariana Grande, Sia, Chloe and Halle, City Girls, Bibi Rexa, and Saweetie. She also released Planet Her's lead single, another disco pastiche, this time featuring SZA, called Kiss Me More, which hit number three on the Hot 100. summer 2021, Planet Her became an instant juggernaut. An even greater showcase for her polyglot and malleable talents and aesthetics, the album was very well received by critics. Celebrated for its sonic diversity, tightly stitched sheen, and Doja's massive charisma and broad assortment of skills. It produced another four top 20 hits. The Quiet Storm Weekend Duet You Write, the Nicki Minaj homage Get Into It Ya, yeah, the Pop Trap Marvel Need to Know, and the Afrobeat Nodding Woman. The smash success of Planet Her officially established Doja as one of the most important pop stars of her generation. In 2023, Doja began to roll out her fourth album, Scarlet, which features a series of singles, including the Dionne Warwick sampling Paint the Town Red, which recently became her second number one hit. A few weeks ago, she also ignited another firestorm when she began publicly squabbling with her fans online, denouncing the toxicity of the modern artist-stan relationship and rejecting long, unquestioned ideas about the relationship between a pop star and their supporters, albeit in a characteristically indelicate way. Scarlet was released just last week, and we'll be discussing it on our Patreon show. Doja Cat has sold 34 million albums and singles in the United States. She has two double platinum albums and one gold album. As a lead artist, she has 16 platinum singles and four gold singles. In 2022, Doja and Nicki Minaj were the first female rap duo to hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 with a Say So remix. And she's currently one of the top 50 streaming acts on Spotify. Doja Cat has one Grammy Award, five Billboard Music Awards, five American Music Awards, and four MTV VMAs. She was named as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine in 2023. Here with me to discuss the enigmatic career and artistry of Doja Cat is Rolling Stone's Larisha Paul. All right, I'm here with staff writer for Rolling Stone, Larisha Paul. Larisha, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited too. I mean, there's no question that the artist that we're talking about today is definitely in an incredibly fun, interesting, dynamic crucible of music stardom at the moment, where it feels like she's somehow incredibly controversial and has gotten herself in a lot of hot water throughout her career, but definitely over recent times and is also experiencing some sort of commercial and artistic apex to the point that she's 
she's at right now. Where do you see Doja, just kind of broadly speaking, right here at this moment? What's her status as a pop star right here on September 14th, 2023? I think Doja is so interesting because everything that you understand and think about pop stardom in 2023, or even over the last three years, she has really circumvented in so many ways, while not ever seeming like she's circumventing it on purpose. It feels like she is stumbling into all of these strange pop moments and then just adapting to wherever that places her. I feel like if anyone else was doing half of the things that she does, they would be out the door so quickly. Mm. But there's something about Doja that is so captivating to people and so interesting to people that they just can't let it go. And I think it also ties into how we think about her persona as people who follow pop music closely. We know a lot more about Doja than most of the people who hear her on the radio. I think about even right now, Morgan Wallen having his big moment. Yeah. If you know anything about music, you know that we don't rock with Morgan Wallen. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know anything but what's on the radio, you're not doing the deep dives. You're not looking into anything. You're not overhearing things. Mm. It keeps them elevated in this certain space. And I think Doja is benefiting from that in a way, but she's also directly commenting on all of that in her music in a really interesting way. Mm. And so she's really just playing with the boundaries of all of this in a way that should make it collapse and it never does. So interesting. I'm curious to ask you what you think about her and the way she's approaching all of this allows her to sort of skate. I mean, the things that come to my mind are, one, there's this maxim in politics that I think weirdly applies here, which is that if a politician does something or something comes out about a politician that undermines how we think about them, that feels out of sync with the persona that they're putting forth, that's the most damaging thing that can happen to a politician, where there's some sort of knock to the image that they had put forth or the message that they're trying to put forth. And there's something that happens that comes across as cutting that or making us less invested in that story that they're trying to tell. But if the same controversial thing happens to a politician, but it's something we might expect from them, Bill Clinton having an affair, for instance, being maybe a good example of this, that wasn't so out of his character that it undermined his presidency. People were willing to kind of accept that, even though obviously it was a very controversial thing. Whereas if Mike Pence had an affair, right. that would be a bigger knock to him. I think the same maxim kind of applies to pop stars. And I was talking about this actually yesterday with my dad who was asking me about Doja and I was sort of saying, I think so much of pop stardom these days is service oriented. Mm. You think about the Taylor Swift model. We talked about this on our episode that we did last time where we were talking about Taylor. Everything she does is about maintaining the upper hand, a good girl image. There's certain things that are maxims of Taylor's universe. And if Taylor came out and was like, I don't love my fans, that would be a huge problem. And I'd say that that extends probably to most pop stars in the current ether because it's so service oriented and there is all of these seeming rules around the way that pop stars are meant to relate to their fans. But I also think the reason Doja skates is because A, she's really talented and the music's continuously good, which is maybe the most important thing. But B, I think her emergence online as an edgelord and provocateur has been such like a huge fundamental part of Doja's personality and public persona that she's able to say insane things that would get most pop stars in trouble. And people are kind of like, oh, that's just part of what loving Doja Cat is about, is that she's going to be a little bit combative. She's going to say things that confuse us. I think that she's working within the confines of the persona that she set forth from the beginning. So there's a wide breadth of what she can get 
get away with, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think the thing with Doja is that she shows up how she is, but I also think that she's filling a space where fans are having to question the way that they approach celebrity and approach pop stars in particular and what they expect from them. Because I think the trade-off for a long time has been, well, if you do this thing that I don't like, I'm going to stop listening to you. Right. But she is making music that people enjoy. Right. And so fans are having to essentially move the goalposts every time she does anything right. to raise the bar of, well, if she does this next time, then that'll be the last straw. But if she does this next time and they just keep updating it. And I think we saw in many ways a similar thing with Kanye. Yeah. The breaking point for Kanye came so late into his nonsense. Yeah. And it was just one of those things where it's like, well, he really can't come back from this. So the rest of us are going to jump ship. But it took people until he got to literal like... Like white supremacy. Right. (laughs) And that was the final straw for most people. And there's still people who are hanging on and lingering. And I think as a fan, you don't want to lose an artist essentially. And I think if I see Pop Crave post that somebody did this horrible thing, I'm going to go remove all of their music from my library. But then as a fan, you're losing on that too. Mm. The artist is honestly losing less than you are when you're disconnecting yourself from music that made you feel something or that you had some type of connection to. To be able to let that go is going to impact you more as a fan than it is going to impact that person who would have got that fraction of a penny for your streams. Totally. And so it ends up being this thing of, I think, especially with Doja, People keep letting her get away with things because they don't want to have to sever themselves from that, especially when you're not going to be able to go outside and not hear her music anyway. Yeah. And so it just becomes an ongoing thing. I think even with this tour that she's about to go on, which I'm sure we'll be getting into, but people trying to sell their tickets now because of her recent behavior and lashing out against her fans... People are like, well, I don't want to give her my money, but they already did. And then it becomes that rationalizing thing of, well, I already bought the ticket. Well, if I put it on Subhub, it's not going to sell. Well, I might as well just go to the show. And then they're going to go to the show. They're going to have a great time. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to be another part of this cycle of allowing them to move the goalposts to justify still supporting her. And I think that's more specifically for when we think about stand culture, they have so much more of an investment before they will tap out on someone. Mm. And I think we're just seeing that on a larger scale with Doja because people either don't know about the context behind a lot of the things that are pushing other people away from her music, or they just enjoy her music so much that they're willing to make excuses for her, especially when we look at some of the more damaging things that other artists have been taken out of cycle for, debate was somebody who was kind of having a simultaneous rise with her. And there's parts of Doja's story that intersect with homophobic comments in the past and things like that. But the way that it played out with DaBaby was just, he didn't have the musical capital to justify keeping him around. Mm -hmm. And so Doja has really benefited from having anchors in place in other places that if one thing is going down, she has the pillars still in place to uphold the rest of it. That's so true. And the baby thing is such an interesting parallel. And I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth right now. Okay. So here's a few things that you had me thinking about. One is the Kanye comparison, obviously extremely apt. And I was listening to PopCast, the New York Times podcast the other day, and they were talking about, which I think is a really true statement, how Doja really calls back to an era of pop stardom that was not so service-oriented. And she's unfamiliar, perhaps, within the scope of these fan service-oriented pop stars that we're used to in the current stand culture universe that we exist in. But that sort of brittle, combative, controversial, willing to give the finger to the fans, willing to give the finger to the press, that's something that anybody 
anybody that grew up with Madonna and Prince in the public eye is more familiar with. And Popcast was making that point. I thought it was very astute. We've gotten conditioned to expect pop stars to just say exactly what we want them to hear and to kind of act perfect so that they don't get canceled or whatever. But really, Doja Cat is in standing in the tradition of a lot of the most iconic people in the field. And that also, I think, includes Kanye. And then the other thing that you made me think about was, I think Doja is in many ways, to her benefit, a walking contradiction. And I think that that applies to so many different areas of her life. Because at the same time as she feels like a throwback in her presentation or her forward-facing persona publicly to these titans of the 80s and 90s that preceded the social media era, I think at the same time, she's also the most adept and equipped contemporary pop star that we have. She has all of the tools that you need to be a successful pop star in 2023. She's equally talented at singing and rapping and sort of like doesn't see the boundaries between those two things, which feels like an integral part of the genreless future that we're currently living in. That's a rare thing to be equally good at both of those things. Maybe Drake is the only other person I can think of that has that same level of adeptness at both of those things. She's extraordinarily eccentric and idiosyncratic, which feels very crucial to modern pop stardom, and yet is able to effectively package that in this really glistening, buttoned-up sort of package through her music, which oftentimes seems to be corralling her eccentricity into music that's extraordinarily glistening, Mm -hmm. bauble pop. She's also a social media creature. I mean, she's literally a product of the internet. She's incredibly adroit at using the internet to expand her persona, to allow those eccentricities to breathe in ways that they don't in her music, and add on top of it that she's a consummate performer and incredible live stage presence, which obviously touring and performing live, which she hasn't done extensively, but obviously is about to start doing. These all come together to make her, I think, a uniquely 2023 pop star. So it feels like in some ways she's a throwback, and then in some ways she's so explicitly contemporary. You said music capital earlier. And I think that that's kind of the thing I wanted to land on to end this opening segment, which is that at the end of the day, the music has been increasingly fascinating and good, and she is very talented. I mean, it's very obvious that we are just scraping the surface of what she can do as an artist. And I think this new album is pointing towards a real expansion or twist on what we've known so far. And I think that if she didn't have that, maybe we would be more focused on some of the bullshit that's coming out of her mouth. But at the end of the day, just like Kanye in his peak era, the music has always remained so fascinating and worth engaging with in a way that allows you to loop in the crazy shit that comes out of her mouth into a broader storm that ultimately churns around great music. Yeah, I think absolutely it does. And when we get into talking about the projects themselves and albums that she's released so far, I think the way that they stagger in quality, the way that they bridge to each other in a way that emphasizes the growth between them and the way that one is not, even if it's not the top tier of what she can do and what she's capable of doing yeah by the time she gets to the next one the previous one wasn't so bad that the next one's going to sound incredibly magnificent or is going (laughs) to emphasize how bad the previous one was they're all in this in-between realm of just good enough that it's easy for her to get better and when she gets better it emphasizes that she was already good right and now she's great and that she's going to be excellent And it's just going to keep building up like that because she is 
constantly developing her craft yes. and has such an attention to detail about it that she, I think, tries to underplay in a lot of ways and tries to be like, oh, I don't care about this. This is whatever. I just made this. Yeah. And that's kind of how her origin starts. It's very much like, oh, I just did this. And all of this success came from it, but I was just playing around. That nonchalance is so intriguing to people. I think when we are fed pop music that is so constructed and so shaped in a certain way and packaged to you in a certain way. Yes. For someone to sit in front of you and say, oh yeah, I made this great pop song. It took me three hours. Yeah. I don't really care about it. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Everyone's just like, oh my God, she's so cool. She's so this and she's so that. And I think the time that she came up was also key to that. You know, having her rise during the pandemic when there was nothing else for anyone to do, but listen more deeply and develop more opinions and get more involved. And what do I actually think about this? What is this making me feel? Mm. I don't want to call it a game, but it, it, if we look at pop music out of the game, she has played it extremely, extremely well. I think she treats it like a game, honestly. I think she thinks that it is for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a healthier well, I don't know if healthy is the right word, but I do think it's one of those things where the opposite of it would be worse. Yes, uh, right. If she took this as the most serious thing in the world that her entire personality and livelihood and sense of self is connected to it. And I think in some ways it is because it can't be when you're a public facing persona in the way that she is. But I think she wants it not to be. Yeah, right. I think we are seeing her try very hard to separate these things out. I just feel like she has to play it up in a way so that it doesn't weigh on her as heavily. A hundred percent. It's like, on the one hand, you have this e-girl showing her feet on the internet and making fart jokes and gleefully, as you said, nonchalant. And then on the other hand, you have one of the most consummate old school professional performers, rappers, singers that we have working today. When she gets on a stage, She's so far ahead of a lot of her peers of her generation, just in terms of sheer old school performance ability. It's that dichotomy that I think continues to make her contradictions very interesting. And I also want to affirm what you were saying, which is that I still think we have yet to see the full totality of her work. This building expression feels like it hasn't reached its peak yet. And I think that that's also part of the fun as you were sort of getting at earlier. So to get us into this conversation, in broad strokes, what is Doja Cat's early life story and whatever we need to know to understand who she is as a persona, artist, performer, etc. Yeah, so Joja's parents were not together, I don't believe. I think her father was not really as around, but he was an actor. And so she did come from some type of a artistic background. Her brother is a producer, and it was just her, her brother, and her mother growing up. She was kept in a lot of spaces in which her behavior was controlled. She lived in an ashram in the Santa Monica Mountains when she was yeah. eight or nine years old. And it was controlled how she dressed, what she wore, what she ate, what she got to do. Mm. And she's described this in the past as being like an imprisonment. She just felt like she couldn't actually be free flowing. And I think as an artist coming into an artistic space out of something that was so confined and left her feeling so trapped, I think she probably had a yearning to release these things and to release her creative expression and to really just go all out because after she moved back to LA, they were in the suburbs. Yeah. And it was a very white suburb. It was upper middle class. Her and her brother were the only people of color in her school or something along those lines. And her mom is white, I think we should point out, right? Yes. She says her brother used to tease her for not having black friends 
and she became very hyper aware of her race when she re-entered that space because when she was on the commune it was very normal for her to be around other people who looked like her so to exit this and enter something where there are a lot more restrictions now around how other people view her after she came out of something where there were restrictions around how she was allowed to view and express herself Mm. i think that started up a lot of the gears about identity that we've seen show up throughout less so her actual musical work but more so the narrative around her musical work and how she presents herself but it was also around that time when they moved out of the suburb they moved to la and once she was in a more city space she got really into skateboarding she got really into Mm -hmm. freestyling she was attending a performing arts high school and so finally getting a chance to tap into these creative urges that she might have had to suppress in her earlier years of life Mm. and then she turns 16 and she drops out of school right and so i think that also speaks to this institutional element of how we think about Doja Cat and her music and what spaces she fits in. And I think these more structured things like the American education system, when you're a teenager and you have ideas that might not match up with what everyone else believes you're capable of or should have access to Mm. or anything like that, especially at a performing arts school. It's the same school that her brother attended. And you're surrounded by people who are saying, I'm good at this thing. I'm going to do this thing. And I think Doja was kind of overrun with interest in a lot of different areas about things. And maybe that was overwhelming for her in that space but I think she figured that she would be better off honing those skills in a less controlled space because she has come from this long background of being in environments where people were telling her what to do what to eat how to dress all of these things and so it was kind of a thing of you go out of that and now you're not in a commune you're not in as controlled of a space but you are still in a school yeah you are still having to take exams and audition and even the audition process to get into the school her aunt is a vocal coach her aunt prepped her and did breathing exercises with her, taught her more about singing because she had always considered herself more of a rapper than a singer, which becomes interesting later on when we think about which of those spaces she occupies more and right. the genre conversation around Doja Cat, which is a really interesting one at this current time. But she sang Part of Your World from Little Mermaid as her audition song huh. for this performing arts high school. I can see that. Wandering free Wish I could be part of that And it's like, well, in the year of Holly Bailey's Little Mermaid, it's really interesting to think that that was a starting point for her because she wasn't as confident in her singing, and yet that's the song that she chose, which is not an easy song to sing. Mm -hmm. And it becomes one of those things where that becomes part of her narrative. Her narrative becomes, I got into this space because I was able to do this thing. Mm. And allowing it to take her to that next level, being able to say, well, I didn't think I could do this thing. I did this. It got me here. And then to be able to have the decision, the choice to say, actually, I don't want this. Yeah, going to actually walk away from this, which is something that I think we've seen her revisit a couple times now throughout her career of, I did this, it got me here. Actually, never mind. I don't want it. Right. Mercurial, unpredictable. Yes. It's interesting too, because the commune speaks to a level of confinement. It also speaks to a level of eccentricity. I mean, clearly she came from a family that lived outside of the norm of society in many ways. I mean, she was mixed race, which in the structure of how racial politics work in America, she is immediately straddling worlds and coming into life from a weird I fit in sort of vibe. And the commune, by the way, is run by jazz legend Alice Coltrane. It's 
so she's literally coming up in this extremely eccentric community. When I think of Doja and I think about how hard she is to put in a box, which I think is such an integral part of how we think of her today, and then of course her polyglot approach to making music, I think that so much of that is made whole by thinking about this childhood. Like, this idea of her being raised by a white mother, being raised in this commune environment, the ways in which she was inspired equal parts by skateboarding as she was by female rappers, as she is by Disney. I think all of those things feel integral to understanding the way that Doja Cat can suck in a lot of different elements of our contemporary pop culture and synthesize them into something extremely easy to consume, but also can be difficult to pin down. When we think of her today, what is she? Is she a rapper? Is she a pop star? Is she a singer? Does it matter? All of these kind of things. Is she a down the middle Dr. Luke product or is she one of the most wild and crazy out there people in the pop space? It's hard to say. And I think occupying all those middle zones feels like it's been part of her life for her entire life. What do you understand about who her early musical inspirations are and what led her eventually to be like, I'm going to pursue a career as a professional musician? Yeah, from my understanding, she had always been kind of interested in rap. She's obviously named Nicki Minaj as a major influence. She shouted her out in songs. It's yes. kind of one of those things that you can hear very clearly in her work. I was on the plane with the wine. You could call me Whitley. I go to Hill, Maine. Listen, I'm the baddest in the school, the baddest in the game. Excuse me, honey, but nobody's in my lane. You can also hear Lil Wayne in her work, especially when you think about that she's 27 now. So I think any 20, anything you're old that was around in 2009 and 2008. Right. And it has any interest in rap. Music is not going to escape the influence of a Nicki or a Wayne. Right. I'm a criteria compared to your career. This isn't fair. I'm a venereal disease like a menstrual bleed through the pencil and leak on the sheet of the tablet in my mind because I don't write shit because I ain't got time for my... Lauren Hill also, but then also Busta Rhymes. And like you're saying, Doja is somebody who is almost like a Kirby type figure. She just kind of inhales everything and it just kind of <laughs> transforms yeah. her into this new thing. She has said that she would listen to Busta Rhymes rap things and try to replicate it. And that was her practice of, if I can do this in the way that he did that. That makes so much sense, actually. Busta Rhymes up in the place, true indeed. Yes, I got the record that's word on my feed. I'm guaranteed to give you what you need. One blood, everybody like Junior Reed. That sharpened her skill. And so from a very early point, she was paying a lot of attention to the quality of it, which I think is something that when we think about rap music now and I think especially like we'll get into SoundCloud but that background that she comes from of just kind of throwing something together and putting it online you don't really hear as much of that oh I have to figure out how to do this the quote-unquote right way Mm. I have to figure out how to do this because everyone's just like well it's more accessible there are not as many gatekeepers there are not as many boundaries I can just download this app and make a song and put it online and get a career out of it but I think Joja was maybe cognizant of the fact that the skill set still has to be there in order for Mm. any of it to be sustainable I think the thing that we see burn out really quickly is people who don't feel the need to sharpen their craft, who think, well, I got here not having to do that. I can just keep doing that. And I think Doja is somebody who has never wanted to take the chance on that being the thing that stops the train for her. And so I think even going off of that, when we watch Doja on a stage, she is captivating. Yeah. There's not a single time I've ever heard Doja Cats performing at XYZ award show and not been like, well, I'm going to be seated. I have to watch that. Yeah, totally. And if I don't, it's going to be on my timeline within five minutes. It's going to be all over my TikTok for you page. It's going to be everywhere. 
because it's fun to watch. And I think it goes back to what you were mentioning earlier about the fact that we don't really have that a lot anymore with pop stars, especially at the time that Doja came up. I think something really interesting happened where her narrative intersected with Lil Nas X's narrative and intersected with The Weeknd's narrative. And these were three Black artists performing, like capital P, performing, creating worlds around their music, creating experiences around their music. And I think when we look back at some of Doja's early influences and people that you can see her drawing from, it's Beyonce, it's Rihanna, mm. it's Lil' Kim, it's mm. Missy Elliott, it's mm. Janet Jackson. Mm. Janet's big, it feels like to me, both in terms of performance and the singing voice. Janet's everywhere. When Janet influenced all those other people that we just mentioned her being influenced by. A hundred percent. Everything traces back to her. But it does become a thing of understanding what it means to be on a stage, what it means to convey music in a physical space. I think when we think about streaming now and we think about the accessibility of music, there's a loss of the physical sense in a more literal way of where we're not buying CDs and all of that. And live performance can go by the wayside for a lot of new pop stars. Watching the VMAs the other night, it's so clear what a cut above Doja is as a performer to a lot of other stars in her generation. It's also interesting to think about that paired with the rappers that you brought up, the thing that loops them together and I think makes for a really interesting origin or jumping off point for Doja Cat as a rapper is Wayne, Buster, Nikki. These are all technicians and people that are incredibly versatile and dynamic technically, but also zany. And there's a quality of gonzo dada is madness for all of them that I think feels really integral to who Doja is as a rapper. So my question is, how does she start uploading music professionally? And then how eventually does Dr. Luke come into the mix? Because that's obviously a critical, important, fascinating, and controversial part of Doja's story. Yeah, so from my understanding, she dropped out of school. She's 16 years old, has nothing else to be doing. Not that she dropped out to be like, I'm going to sit at home all day and not do anything. She dropped out and was just like, okay, what's my plan? And I think she looked at what she already had, which was this eccentric upbringing and this interest in music and this understanding of it mm. on a really deep level. And I think that's one of the things about Doja's that she does understand on a technical level, the function of a lot of these areas that she's toying with, even from a young age. And so she is coming up at a time when she has a lot of access to very starter tools to make music and to share music. There's not a lot of boundaries that she has to be worried about at that time. And especially as a 16-year-old, as a 17-year-old, 17-year-old girls feel like they can do anything on this entire planet yeah, with totally. utmost ease and then totally. go to a party the next day. The world is at my feet, essentially. Yeah. And so she starts making music. She's just uploading it on SoundCloud, but she's also deleting a lot of those songs after she puts them up. Mm. She'll upload a song, she'll take it down, she'll upload a song, she'll take it down. <laughs> and the first one that she <laughs> left on SoundCloud was So High, which is her first official single, Dr. Luke. Yeah. From what I understand, found her through the SoundCloud releases. It's kind of like a spacey alt R&B song that feels in the vein of like, rock with me here, Lion Babe or Kali Uchis a little bit. Ooh. It kind of reminds me of alt R&B of that moment, Tanache even at that time. There was this whole strain of female R&B artists that were making psychedelic, spacey, rap adjacent music. That's what this reminded me of more than anything. Yeah, I think spacey is definitely the word for it. And I think it's interesting because I feel like that sound 
sound we ended up hearing so much more of in like 2015. That's what 2015 sounds like to me. Totally. And so for her to have been there three years early, I think is really telling. Right. For her to have been sitting around at 17 years old, just kind of playing around and coming up with something that would end up being kind of a defining sound three years later, I think is really interesting. And I wonder if that is part of what drew Dr. Luke to her as an artist. And I think especially finding her at that time, I think the interesting thing about Dr. Luke is his roster of artists that he's worked with have been almost solely female. He works with women. And the point at which he started working with a lot of the notable women that he's produced for, I think about Pink, I think about Kelly Clarkson. He came into a lot of these artists' lives when they already kind of had a sense of self, a sense of musical identity and what they wanted to do, what they wanted to sound like. And I think what we notice happening, especially post Katy Perry, because he got to Katy very, very early. Yeah. I think he became interested in the malleability of young artists. Mm. And so I think his focus probably shifted to how can I get in sooner so that I have more influence, so that I have more control on how these things are shaped? Right, that goes for Kim Petras and a bunch of artists that has been his protégés since. That's so true. And it's because especially at the time of him finding Doja Cat, he didn't have a ton of artists that he was working with, even on the label itself. So Doja signed a joint partnership agreement with Dr. Luke's record label a year before the Kesha situation began. Right. And so when she signed, that was not a concern. That was not something she knew about. Right. What she knew was who was on his label. And the only artist that he had had that had reached pop star heights attached directly to his own label was Kesha. Totally. His other artist around the time was like Juicy J. Right. Shout out Juicy J, but it's not really that crazy. You know? <laughs> he was not going to craft a pop star out of Juicy J. It was not happening. Sure. And also Juicy J was past his prime at that point as well. Far. I mean, this is pretty dark horse though. He had a little... <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, whatever. He was like a legacy artist. I think the other interesting thing is that Kesha provides a bridge from the Luke working exclusively with white rock-oriented female artists for the most part towards his more recent iteration as someone that works almost primarily with black rap female artists. Kesha obviously is someone that bridged those two lines between rapping and singing. So it's interesting to think also as Doja Cat is him thinking ahead to the way that music was going to change and that rap was beginning to take center stage in popular music in the middle of the 2010s and obviously would continue to throughout the rest of that decade would supplant the pure pop or pop rock vibes that he had come up with. So there's a sort of prescience in seeing Doja Cat as the future in that moment. Yeah, I think so. And I think he saw the same potential that everyone sees her kind of achieving now. I think he heard a lot of things going on on those early releases. And it wasn't just that one song. It's when she put one song online and then her entire life changed. It was a lot of random stuff that does not sound good, but sounds interesting. Mm. And I think at that point in your career, sounding interesting sometimes is more important than sounding good. Right. So they signed this deal. What do we know about the deal? He is known for creating these very all-encompassing long-term deals with artists where he has a lot of control and he's promised a certain amount of placements on a certain number of albums moving forward. Do we know anything about the details of Doja's deal with him? No. 
and she will not talk about them. Right. She was on the cover of Rolling Stone in 2021. And there was a moment in the interview where she alluded to Dr. Luke putting his name on things that he did not have a hand in creating. Right. And then she issued a statement to Rolling Stone after the profile portion that took place and was just kind of backtracking on it and being like, well, I don't mean to make it sound like he's taking credit for things that he didn't do. That's not what I meant. He's been very supportive. Mm. And then in most other interviews that she's done, she's declined to comment on working with him has not really gotten into the details of things, but she has previously early in her career supported fans who were defending her from people saying, oh, well, she works with Dr. Luke because that becomes a thing in stand battles online. Right. That's a card they're going to pull to be like, you're going to lose this argument. Your favorite artist works with Dr. Luke. Sure. And her fans would just be like, you know, she was a teenager. She didn't know when she signed that deal. None of this was going on. She couldn't have known. And he doesn't work on her music. Right. Her early, early releases, he's not that heavily involved in. No. Well, you see that actually come later. What's interesting too is that Doja has this moment in the middle 2010s and then kind of disappears for a while. So she has this EP that comes in the wake of signing to Dr. Luke called Purr. We don't have to spend a ton of time on this music, but what do you think about the music on Purr? And he's not involved in this music. No. He's not listed really in any of the credits. What do you think about this music and how does it sound? Does it sound like the Doja Cat music that she becomes famous for in any notable ways? How is it different? What do you think about that EP? I don't think about that EP. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think for me being a pop fan and being introduced to Doja in a pop sense, yeah. we'll get to Hot Pink, but that was my entry point to Doja. Sure, many people's. Yeah, and that's a good entry point when you can go to an album and it's all good music and it's all something that you want to hear more of. I have never listened to Purr and thought, I want to hear more of whatever's happening here. <laughs> so High is on that EP. It's very trippy. It's very psychedelic. It's kind of all over the place. It's interesting to think about in that space because my favorite Doja Cat fun fact is her randomly being in the music video for Shower by Becky G in 2013. <laughs> The Dr. Luke connection. Yes. That's the Dr. Luke connection. Yes. She was just kind of doing anything. When I was listening back to it ahead of this, it kind of put me in the space of how I think about someone like Coyle Ray. Like she's just kind of around, mm. but I have no strong feelings about anything Coyle Ray has ever done. Interesting. Right. Around, but not <laughs> integral. It goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about Doja was able to bridge these gaps between projects where the quality of one informed the other. And then the inverse happened of saying, okay, well, the second project is really good. Maybe that last one wasn't that bad, but I can see where she was going. And it keeps people thinking, oh, I see what she was trying to do. Even if the execution wasn't all the way there, I see where she was going with it. And I think that a lot of times is enough to string people along to the next thing. And as long as you're consistently building, I think it gave her a strong foundation, but I don't think there's anything defining about Doja on that album. I think that definitely comes later. And it also, it comes after this giant break that she takes. Right. It's so interesting because I hadn't even listened to this before. And I think the number one thing that stood out to me about it is there's this aggressive berserk quality to the best Doja Cat music. This feeling of true unpredictability and sharpness and control mastery over a kind of insane cadre of voices and really sharp rapping style 
styles that then lapse into singing. And there's this feeling of a kid in a playground who is just having a berserk, really fun time as they make their music. And this music texturally is the opposite of that. It's spacey and stonery, ethereal and hazy and hard to get your arms around. And it's almost like Aesop mob runoff stoner <laughs> blog rap meets R&B. Right. It feels like a haze. It doesn't feel sharp and memorable in the way that so much Doja Cat music that we all are familiar with is the opposite of that. When you think about if there were any seeds of what came later, do you see any of that here? Or does this feel entirely disconnected in your mind from why we love Doja Cat now? I think it does feel disconnected, but I do think the element of how it got on people's radar, it coming from SoundCloud, I think that's the significant thing. I see, I see. When we think about the term like quote unquote SoundCloud rap, Rapper, you don't consider Doja Cat to be a SoundCloud rapper, but you also don't consider Fetty Wap to be a SoundCloud rapper, even though that's where Trap Queen blew up, or you don't consider Post Malone to be a SoundCloud rapper, and that's where White Iverson blew up. So it's just that stepping stone and the way that she was able to use that space. I think the actual functional release of the music and the formatting of the music and how it was delivered to people was more informative about her career than the music itself was. Absolutely. She doesn't look back fondly on most of her musical releases early, I think. <laughs> this project as well as her debut album which came after this break even that when she looks back and she talks about those early records she is always hypercritical of them but she's hypercritical not most of the time of her lyrics she is hypercritical of how it sounds mm. about how she rapped how she sounded when she was singing mm. the production on a lot of it it is the actual what you're hearing more so than what she's saying that she's critical of. She could not care less if her lyrics in 2014 were garbage. Right. <laughs> but she cares about the fact that the songs themselves don't sound good, that they don't sound pleasing to her ear. Mm. And I think when we think about someone like Doja, who is such a big figure in this pop space, you can't have a good pop song that doesn't sound good to your ear. Totally. The whole point of pop is that it has to sound good to your ear. And to be detail-oriented in that way, to be that type A detail-oriented mastermind is such an important part of being a pop star. Yes, and that, I think, is what we see bleeding into the doja that we know now and that we've watched evolve over the last four or five years. It's that part of it. And I don't know if she would have came out the gate with Hot Pink, if that would have been the starting point, would have been very, very different than what we see on that first EP and then what we see on the first album. But the break that she takes in between the EP and the album, I think was very crucial. I don't think if she hadn't done that, we would have landed in the same place. Right. And from what I understand, the reason behind the break, which was about four years mm -hmm. of her not releasing music, was that the label forgot about her. The label was just like, we don't really know what to do with this. Because the EP didn't make any notable impact, obviously. Exactly. And so they were just like, we don't really know what to do with you. And then while she's in this, she herself is not really sure what she's doing with herself, with her own artistic identity that she's trying to form. Because before she was just having fun. She was doing this thing on her own. And we see this show up in her narrative later on of... I was just doing something because I liked it and other people ended up liking it too. But then she enters a space where there are more expectations, there are more pressures, and that kind of derails her creative process a couple of times. And so this first moment of this happening, she said that she didn't really have a lot to pull on creatively, that she was just kind of disinterested. And then the label wasn't really paying attention to her. And so she just kind of slipped under the radar around that time. And I think an interesting thing is she was obviously having come from that SoundCloud space that was a community for a lot of artists in a lot of ways. It wasn't just this is a place 
who were going to release music. Right. It created a community amongst the fans who felt like they were tapping into something early and showing up early to something that was going to be important later on. Mm. And it also connected those artists to each other. And there was an early moment where she's mentioned that she was supposed to be on a remix of Bellyache by Billie Eilish. And did not know what to write. She was just like, I don't have anything to say. And so that would have been a major introduction. That could have been a trajectory changing moment for her, but she wasn't ready for it. Mm. She didn't have the drive at that time. And so she, for four years, was just kind of around and she was making music the whole time, but she wasn't releasing anything. She wasn't furthering her career in any meaningful way. Isn't part of the narrative also that she was like a super stoner and then decided to stop smoking weed at a certain point? And that was something she pegs as a big creative breakthrough. Yes. And that was why she does not like her debut album. Mm. So she puts out Amala in 2018. Yeah. She does not like this record. Right. And it goes back to the thing earlier. So she's not trashing the lyrics. She's not trashing what she said she is trashing how it sounds right and i think she sees that as more of a reflection of her artistry than she does the lyrics a lot of the time i think that's something that comes later right she takes this long break she releases this album amala in 2018 that is technically her debut album from what i understand about this record it was a label obligation essentially as you mentioned she had been recording music throughout the hiatus and through 2018 the label essentially got to a place with her where they were like give us whatever and we're gonna put out an album and that was what was 20 2018's Amala. She has no real heat going on when this record is released. No one's really paying that much attention to her. And I don't know what you think about the bulk of the songs on the traditional track list of this album. I listened to it honestly for the first time in prepping for this episode and it feels more legible to me as Doja Cat music, but definitely in a very nascent form. And a lot of the times, weirdly, the music sounds almost like demos she could have sent to Rihanna as songs that other pop stars could have recorded. And you think of Doja as such a singular artist artist who's mm-hmm. kind of irreplicable in many ways but you listen to songs on this traditional track listing like go to town or cookie jar these vague electro reggae songs that don't feature a ton of the rapping or if they do it's kind of negligible and she sort of employs a voice that in many instances reminds me of rihanna's voice And nothing sticks or feels distinctive in the way that so much of her music later does. It doesn't have that punch of that personality. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you think about the music on this traditional track list of Amala, but that was my take on it. Yeah, it's not cohesive at all. And I think Doja is not someone who's making concept records and all of these things that are everything needs to be woven together super tightly. But I think there's always some type of thread tying everything together and there is no thread on that first album. Yeah. And I think what you mentioned is really interesting because that cookie cutter sound that anyone could be singing this is how I often think about Dr. Luke. Totally. Because I think because he works with so many pop stars, he has an understanding of the formula of pop. Right. Having learned from Max Martin, like there's a very A plus B equals blah, blah, blah. Right. It's very structured. And I think Doja being someone who pays so much attention to skill and to format and to execution, I think she probably was just creating things that were very easy. And I think if she had at that point been sitting in rooms with Dr. Luke or executives around Dr. Luke or people who understand his process and his vision, I think that could have informed the approach to the songs on here. Honestly, we don't know, but I wonder if that was 
part of why she felt so creatively stuck. Yeah. Because she wasn't creating in the same way. She was creating to a formula, which is not how anything that sparked anyone's interest in her prior to that. That's not how that was formed. A hundred percent. And also Dr. Luke isn't on any of these credits, but I wonder if he was secretly here because I was thinking about the fact that this is post Kesha, but pre his sort of reluctant acceptance back into the pop fold where he can be credited on songs. And this was around the same time period that he started popping up on these Kim Petra songs under pseudonyms and all of these things. So I wonder if he's more present on this album than the credits suggest. So that would play to your point of there's a genericism to these songs that is striking in thinking about an artist as immediately recognizable as Doja Cat is to us now. Again, there's this feeling of ethereal alternative R&B meets mainstream kind of faceless pop Yes, is the vibe of this music to me. And it's good. It's very proficient. One thing that we can put out there that maybe is on the positive side about this music is Doja's music in its best form walks the line between eccentricity and straight ahead pop bangers. I mean, that's what she's done so effectively in her successful music is kind of funneled a truly zany persona into songs that feel really easily acceptable and broadly appealing on radio. Yes. In another world, perhaps Doja Cat could have been an Esther Dean or something like that. Mm -hmm. Perhaps Doja Cat could have been a very effective top line songwriter for other pop stars. That is something that this music made me think of. But this music vaporizes the minute that you hear it. It's hard to keep your head in it. It didn't make an impact and it didn't show up anywhere. And the funniest part about it is that the thing that changes her career is the opposite sort of thing, which is something where it's not at all a little tightly wound pop bobble, but it's something totally larky and eccentric and bizarre, which is that in 2018, following this album tanking, more or less, she releases this larky thing she made in her room in one day, this song and music video, Moo. How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right? Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing, in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite pop pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash pop pantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. Honestly, that's the strange entry point, I think, for most people into who Doja Cat is. Yes, I very vividly remember opening Twitter and seeing this music video on my timeline. Me too. I remember where I was when I watched Moo. Very vividly. Yeah. I mean, this was my first experience with Doja Cat. Can you explain what it is to anybody that might not know? So it is Doja Cat with a handy-dandy green screen and a cow costume, (laughs) a little cow bikini top, basically, and cow pants. And she is mooing and she's talking about being a cow. And (laughs) it's just, it's so random. There's like a ludicrous sample and there's so much going on. Bitch, I'm a cow. Bitch, I'm a cow. I'm not a cat. I don't say now. Bitch, I'm a cow. Bitch, I'm a cow. Bitch, I'm a cow. Bitch, I'm a cow. Go moo. 
She has French fries up her nose. French fries stuck up her nose in true cow last minute fashion. It's funny because this is not what most hit Doja Cat music will eventually sound like, but there is a part of her persona that I think gets crystallized here. And I think the positive reception to it maybe gave her the confidence to bring this forth in her music where Doja Cat is containing the ethos of what we would normally associate with teenager boys, the potty humor and fart joking and sticking French fries up your nose, saying bitch on Macau. These are all things I think we normally associate with teen boys, but processed in the vessel of this beautiful black woman. It's an interesting combination that's a critical part of her persona moving forward, I think. Yes. And there was an element of the music itself that was intriguing. That was just like, wait, why does this kind of sound good? (laughs) It does. And that's so important for pop music because that's how they get you. You can hear a pop song and be like, I never want to hear this again. And if it wiggles into your brain enough, it's going to take over. You have no part in it. You have no conscious control over that. She has incredible phrasing. There's certain ways that words come out of her mouth that are so memorable. I think it's actually adjacent to Paint the Town Red. I mean, not the lyrics so much as just the way she goes, bitch, I said what I said. And in this, it's bitch, I'm a cow. There's a way that she gets the words out that is incredibly memorable. Yeah. I think even demons, she does the whole, who are you and what are those? Yes. Yes. Right. Exactly. Everyone thought, is she trying to do the Northwest thing? And I think even that part of it, getting (laughs) anyone to ask themselves that question, you've won. Yeah. You've won the intrigue. You've won the interest. You've won all of that. With Mila's message, she made that song in 12 and a half hours. Song and video. Sign and video in 12 and a half hours and had other songs that she had spent time on. There was a song she had called Nintendo that she thought was going to be the song. Everything else fizzled and then Moo ended up being the thing and she was just sitting there like, of course it's this dumb thing that I made just joking around. This is a viral sensation and I remember thinking it was a joke. I don't remember looking at that video and being like, oh, this is a legitimate pop star that I'm going to be paying attention to. Yeah. A legitimate pop star who already has a full body of work released that you could go listen to. No idea. Yeah. That did not come across to me at all. I was like, this is some girl making a joke video in her room that just somehow got attention and blew up on the internet, which is also interesting, I think, in terms of how Doja Cat framed herself via the success of this song. I wonder how you think about this as a reflection of Doja as a creature of the internet. I mean, to the people that know about her, does she have an online persona? What is she doing on the internet besides Moo? How does this provide an entree to maybe talk about Doja as an online creature, even in this early period? I don't remember following her around this time because, like you're saying, nothing about this made me think that this was a person that I needed to pay any attention to. You remember that lady, the Gorilla Glue girl? Yes. It was kind of like that, where I was just like, people do stupid things on the internet all the time that I see and that I move on from because it's really not that interesting. Because mind you, around this time, we have Bad Baby and we have all these random people that are just around. Whoa, Vicky, we don't need more of those. So when I see things that I'm just like, this could turn into something like that, my interest in it dissipates almost immediately. Right. Because I just don't think it's worthwhile and I don't think it's interesting. And I also think the Twitter trend cycles they burn out so fast. This is going to be fun for about five minutes and then we're going to find out some horrible things that this person did. Yes. And some version of that does happen with Doja, but it was not a thing of me feeling like I needed to be invested in her personhood or her persona or anything because it was just that one thing. Yeah, but it certainly in and of itself displays a inherent understanding of how to get attention on the internet. I mean, it's genius in its idiocy. It's one of those things where it's somewhere treading the line between the dumbest thing you've ever seen and then also a strong of sheer genius. I mean, it really is. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about it is that it's an entry point to her relationship with virality in a way that shows every time she's found herself in these spaces of these 
big viral moments and we'll talk about say so at some point but it's just one of those things where she is never really the one orchestrating it in a way that she's pushing for it to happen i think about lil nas x and old town road he pushed for that to happen right he in a similar way to doja was having such an understanding of the internet knew if i position all of these different dominoes in the right way knock one of them down the rest of it's going to cascade in this way and i think doja had a vision for it but she wasn't the one doing the pushing she wasn't the one lining everything up to happen in a certain way i think as things were happening the wheels were turning in her head and she was starting to see trial and error okay if i do this then this happens cause and effect Mm -hmm. i think led her to how we understand her now and how she functions on the internet and how she knows approaching conversations in different ways approaching how she uses twitter how she uses instagram how she uses instagram live how she uses those chat rooms she was in showing feet She has a deep understanding of how all these things function. And I think when you build a following in that way, and I think it's better that when Moo blew up, it wasn't all eyes on Doja from that very moment. I think she would have operated in that space very differently. But I think because it kind of garnered her some semblance of a fan base on top of whatever she already had from her SoundCloud days and from that first album, I think it gave her a foundation to start building on slowly. And it also gave her a chance to test things out without as many people watching her. Yeah, and I think that also what's so interesting about it is that you were mentioning earlier the fun of watching her build into this consummate artist that we were watching in real time beneath our feet at the moment and she keeps impressing over and over again with how much more she can do and the all-encompassing nature of her talent and starting from this point is the ultimate way for her to do that this being her breakthrough into public consciousness you couldn't set yourself up to surprise the public more effectively than by emerging on a literal meme song that showcases almost none of your virtue virtuosity at all. I mean, this is somebody of massive virtuosic talent, a truly phenomenal rapper, a truly phenomenal singer, a truly generationally great live performer. You don't see any of that shit in this video. Sometimes on this podcast, we talk about moments when pop stars arrive fully formed and you look at the first thing you know about them and you're like, there it all is. It's right there from the beginning. This is the opposite of that story. What Doja Cat arrived to us as is displaying essentially none of the things that make her successful now, aside from her zany juvenile sense of humor and her understanding of the internet, which feel obviously like important elements of her, but not forward-facing musical acumen that is a huge part of how we understand Doja Cat now. And then I think that this song leads to really the two songs that feel like the genesis of actual canonical Doja Cat music, which is Tia Tamara and Juicy, which are two songs that get added to Amala post its release. And I think what they display, each of them, is a growing confidence and understanding of how to funnel it all into what could make her unique in the pop bobble context. Tia Tamara and Juicy are both shiny, very intricately and well-produced, simplified pop songs, but Tia Tamara is absolutely insane sounding. I mean, she sounds crazy. She's dropping these kind of hashtag raps in the style of Nicki Minaj, and it's a collaboration with another zany character in Rico Nasty. It was the first moment that you really hear Doja as virtuosic but insane, zany, Busta Rhyme style, unpredictable rapper girl. And then you have Juicy, which is a very sleek, sexy, almost Janet adjacent, mm-hmm. incredibly shiny Dr. Luke produced, maybe the first actual credited Dr. Luke produced Doja Cat rum shaker. Keep it juicy, juicy. I eat that lunch. Mm. Yeah. She keep that booty booty. She keep that plum. 
So in those two songs, you have the Doja Cat musical project beginning to take shape. I fully agree. I think Tia Tamara was the earliest moment that I remember of hearing Doja do anything where I was just like, okay, that's the light switch moment for me. Exactly. It's also hilarious. It's so funny. The video is excellent. And as a pop fan, the package of it sounds good. It's fun. It's stuck in my head. There's a fun visual. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on, Yeah. but it's not people throwing things at a wall. Totally. It's very well packaged and put together and shows her talent, but also is so teen boy humor. I mean, the entire conceit of the song is comparing her boobs to Tia and Tamara. It displays the breath of the Doja Cat experiment for the first time in one song to me. Yeah, and the cultural reference of it, there's something for everyone in some way. Yeah. And I think it's a better starting point than most of the things that she had put out before this. I think it is that thing of the foundation, her building on what she already had. And I think those two songs gave her so much rocket power to jump off of. Yeah. And I think she used it quickly enough that it didn't burn out. Yeah. But I also think that because of how she has archived herself on the internet, I don't know if she was ever fully preoccupied with, I need to make sure that everything looks this way right now. I think she always understood that people could always go back and watch all of this evolve if they needed to. I wonder also if the space just opened up to be more hospitable to her talents, because I think at this point, we're living in a moment more so than we were in 2014, where somebody that is unclassifiable between rapping and singing and between all of these genres, the ground is softened in this 10-year wake of Drake at that point to the point where I thought so much about Nikki as a precursor to her and the struggle that Nikki really went through to sort of bifurcate her persona between being a rapper and a singer and a pop star and rapper, and it all felt like it had to be separate things servicing different universes and different fans. And then by the time you get to 2018, you don't really have to do that anymore. Someone can exist like a Doja Cat and be all of the things in one package in one song. It doesn't have to be bifurcated in this way. That is so much of what Doja Cat's strength is, is that ability to skate between all of that stuff. And I think that by 2018, more so than 2014, the ground was softened, the world was ready for someone that had her unique approach and talent, I guess. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think the genre conversation around Doja Cat has always been very interesting because it did come at a time when the listeners were like, this doesn't really matter. Yeah. But then we would look at her through the lens of where she is positioned in the industry, who her peers are, who else is kind of around her at the time in a similar conversation, I think happened around Lil Nas X. I think they are very much parallel to each other in a lot of interesting ways Mm -hmm. in the internet sense, in the performance sense, and in this, I rap, but I also sing, but I'm also this genre and I also do this and it also looks this way. Mm -hmm. And people think I'm funny, but people also think I don't take what I do seriously. And it becomes this back and forth battle. And I wrote about this recently about these pop rap stars who go viral and then find themselves happy to course correct and remind people that they are artists, that they're not just people who are funny on Twitter. And we see a lot of them stepping back from social media. Lil Nas X is barely online anymore. Jack Harlow, not really online at all. Doja is too online. (laughs) Trying to find some type of balance that says, I understand the function of this in my career, but also I want the focus to be on the fact that I do what I do and I do it well. And I think when we look at the rapping and the singing, I think even now, Nikki's latest single is still in conversation with that conversation of 
she raps, she sings, she does this, she does this. She didn't get off that VMA stage without rapping. She was not going to be like, I have this platform and you're going to not hear me rap today. She made sure that she occupied that space. And I think an artist like Nicki did precursor in a lot of ways, the way that we see Doja interact with her fans. For sure. Up until a point when she starts telling them that she hates them and they delete their accounts and get a life, essentially. <laughs> no, I mean, Nikki's definitely part of the generation where they keep a very soft and loving and friendly relationship to her fan base. Yes, she would get on Instagram Live and she would play the music. She would talk to them. And Doja very much began replicating that. I always think about early in the pandemic when she got on Instagram Live dressed as a knight or something and was reciting <laughs> Roddy Rich lyrics. <laughs> It's just like, Wait. what are you doing? <laughs> I was out there with a stash. Cruise the city in a beautiful, in a fuck, in a bulletproof Cadillac. Cause I know these lasses after where the bag at. Gotta move smarter, gotta move harder. It's so funny. She is crazy in a fun way. I mean, I have to say the unpredictability of Doja. Like I remember she would just go live at certain points in the pandemic and just be sitting in her room doing her nails and just sit there, not even talking, not even saying anything. And it was just like, what are you doing? What is this? And so many other artists would want to preserve some type of boundary. And you see young artists more and more creating that boundary very early. You think about someone like Olivia Rodrigo. Yeah, right. She's not tweeting up a storm. She's going to do her little Instagram photo dump and go live her life. Right. A lot of artists trying to reclaim that control over their own space. Yeah. Doja just busted down a door to be like, I don't really care. You can be here if you want to. You can leave if you want to. Right. I'm going to exist in this space. And I wonder how much of that was her trying to almost condition herself to what she was approaching as mm. a pop artist to say, if I want this to go where it's leading me, if I want to have the success, if I want to have the accolades, if I want my talent to be able to take me to these heights, I have to be comfortable with people looking at me. I have to be comfortable with having all of these eyes on me, all of this concern about what I'm doing. And I think there are certain points where she maybe overestimated how comfortable she was with that. And I think that's the cycle that we're in with her now, where she is realizing that she opened the door a little more than she wanted to. Mm. And now she's trying to shut it and there's too many bodies pushing into it. Right. That's so true. All right. So after the release of Juicy and Tia Tamara, Doja becomes a sort of ascendant pop star. Juicy eventually goes on to serve as both a bonus track for Ramallah and then the lead single for her next record, Hot Pink, and ends up peaking at number 41. This is also simultaneously the moment where those homophobic tweets surface, right? Yes. We should touch briefly on what happened with that because obviously internet controversy is clearly a part of Doja. We have to get too deep into it, but what exactly happens there? Because I feel like that's a precursor to setting up this brittle relationship between Doja, the press, and her fans and not apologizing, I guess. So as pop fans do, they wait until the moment is right and then they go looking right. for things from the past. Right. And they had trudged up a bunch of posts where she used the F slur. And I think one of them was in relation to Tyler, the creator, which mm -hmm. is an interesting figure to be at the center point of this because he has his own things with the internet. Sure. And homophobic shit. Right, exactly. And so it was just an odd combination of things to be happening, but essentially her going to address it, she just used it about five more times in, in this full apology and this whole, I'll take accountability, but I'm not going to villainize myself for your sake kind of thing. It was very much like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to let you as the internet reprimand me. Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to watch happen because I think to that point, we hadn't really seen anyone interact in this space in that way. 
any other artist having the moment that she was having and having it be such a fragile moment in her career right. would have laid down, I'm so sorry, notes out, busted out, Instagram, totally. everything. And she did put out a quote unquote apology. And then she went on Instagram live and did her version of it. She did the whole, my PR looked this over, said it's fine thing. And then she got on there and said, this is how I speak to you. This is how I interact with you. This is how I communicate with you. And then did it again. It's Trumpian in a sense. If you just double down on it and don't apologize, you can kind of skate on things. I mean, there is kind of two approaches to these things if you have the thick skin and the combative personality to just own it and just keep going forward you can keep going i mean it's not a comparison i think anybody would welcome necessarily but it is something that has been an effective strategy of the former president which is to say insane shit and then when people say take it back he goes no (laughs) you know i'm not gonna take it back (laughs) and he says it again and i think also what it is is i think it is a thing where she feels that she's let people into her life so much but also is intent on constantly reminding people that that is not everything. And I think it's a thing of what you see on the internet is not someone's entire life. People are showing you snippets. People are showing you moments. And I think she is trying to remind people, yeah, I show you snippets. I show you moments, but this isn't everything. And I know myself better than you do. And even in that tweet, she was just like, do I hate gay people? I don't think I hate gay people. Right. And it reminds me of someone like Maddie from the 1975. Totally. Good comp. The way he is like, I'm going to say all of these things that people are going to be so pissed off about me with, but I know who I am. I know I'm not racist. I know I'm not this. And it's like, yeah, but other people don't know you. And it was a thing where there was an early release that Doge had put out called Didn't Do Nothing, which is like a racist term for police brutality and everything connected to that. And in the music video for that, she was using a lot of Hindu imagery and it was a lot of appropriation going on. And when everyone was just like, hey, why would you do this? She was just like, well, if I thought it was bad, I wouldn't have done it. Right. I know who I am and I know what my intentions were. And I'm sorry you feel that way. Right. She is the queen of I'm sorry you feel that way about what I did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In a way, it's admirable, and in a way, it's annoying. Yeah, and I think it's that thing of people don't want to jump ship on an artist that they love, and so they want to see that she is open to teachable moments. And I think she has reminded people time and time again. She is like, no, I'm not. There's no interest in being taught anything. She's like, listen, no, I don't care. Totally. But she also very clearly does care at moments, and it's the things that she does blow up about that are really telling about what does matter to her. Because the way that she'll be so nonchalant about these kind of things, the things that she actually does blow up about, go on Twitter rants about, get really pissed off about, are way more telling about what's important to her. And then her audience can see, well, we did this and it pushed that button mm. versus we did this and it really didn't do anything. And so it's like them learning her in the same way that she learned how to utilize them as a fan base on the internet. Totally. All right. So in 2019, she drops Hot Pink, which as you mentioned, is many people's entree to her. It will eventually house her breakthrough number one single, Say So. But before we talk about say so how would you describe the music generally on this record obviously dr luke is much more involved in these songs there's a lot of variance here which i think is a key to doja cat's output in general if you had to take us through some highlights of this record and describe what this music sounds like and what is her on record persona and what are the features of some of these songs that feel important to talk about so i feel like hot pink you hear the dr luke influence on it it's such a big pop record at the point in time that it came out in 
2019, our idea of what a pop record could and should sound like is changing. Changing how exactly? Changing in the sense that we're thinking more about, is this person a rapper? Is this person a singer? Is this a pop artist? Is this a rap artist? Because I think it changes the lens that you look at the music with. Mm. If you're comparing it to what are the other big rap albums that came out this year, that's going to change your perspective on it. Then if you're saying, what about the other big pop albums that came out this year? Interesting. And people don't quite know where to place her on this record totally. Right. And I think we see that happen with the other people who are occupying that space. Like you mentioned Drake earlier, mm -hmm. it's the lens that you're looking at it with. And I think she, at that point in time, was trying to center the conversation around her away from something like Moo, away from what people knew her as. And at this point, we do have Juicy, we do have Tia Tamara, but to show that she can carry an entire top to bottom project, she had never had an actual project that was worth listening to all the way through and spending time with and learning with. And there's such big pop choruses across this, especially at a time when TikTok is becoming more and more influential in the music industry. There were a lot of moments that people could grasp onto. Yeah. I think about Bottom Bitch, everything about that, the delivery of that song, the, the lyrics in the song, the sound of the song. Yeah. It's fun, cyber sex, fun, streets becomes a major thing later on. And I think that's a really key thing about this because it was arriving at a time when there was interest in her, but not so much that there are as many eyes on her as there are when Planet Her arrives or when Scarlet is about to come out. Right. And so what happens is there ends up being a ton of sleeper hits on this album because it gives people time to come around to it. And she knows these things are just going to be sitting waiting for people. So while she's working on the next thing, I think she's also cognizant of the fact that people are going to just be coming on board about a later thing. Right. It has a long tail. Yes. And I think it's also important that it's sort of unified by her persona, but can move through so many things. I mean, bottom bitch, you brought up samples. What's my age again by Blink-182, which is a fascinating sample to turn to for a quote unquote rapper. But it's almost like pop punk filtered through trap drum programming in a way and has an emotional quality to it. I think that contrast in her persona between laid backness and sharp skill virtuosity and then zany gonzo personality is the key to understanding why these tracks are so interesting to listen to. She can be so many things on one track. One minute she's singing, one minute she's rapping, one minute she's sort of emoting, one minute she's being silly and speaking in a voice. And that can happen in a song or from song to song, like Cyber Sex is a bubblegum kind of trap rap song about goofy come-ons. She can be sexual, but then the sexuality verges on comedy. You're not quite sure whether it's lascivious or whether she's like a teenage boy making a joke about having sex. I want you to get freaky on camera doesn't sound necessarily like a come on so much as almost like she's making fun of the other person. There's a sense of humor in that way. And then bottom bitch is that once this emotional pay on to female friendship, but told in the language of a pimp to a hoe talking about the hoe at the bottom. 
bottom of the food chain. It's this really interesting dichotomy. And then you have a lot of the zany personality stitched up in really tight pop tracks, like Like That, the song with Gucci Mane. She's able to also funnel the Dr. Luke sheen and bobble of these pop songs is an interesting superstructure for her to sort of go crazy. It's an interesting balancing act, I think, that she pulls off on a lot of these songs, where it's like she can go as wild as she possibly can, but within the confines of something incredibly glossy. And that was the thing that I mainly walk away from these set of songs thinking about. It's an interesting balance. And I wonder how you feel about that tension when you listen to these songs. You say you're a pop person, so maybe this is a confine that you enjoy. Do you feel like she's confined by the glossiness of the songs? Do you like that structure? How do you feel about that? So what it is for me, and I think it's what sparked my interest in a lot of the songs on this record, is that as a pop fan, as someone who grew up listening to Top 40 Radio and was just the pop girl... My entry point into a lot of rap songs was any rap song that had a catchy pop hook to it. Right. A lot of that 2008 Lil Wayne stuff where it's like these really fun choruses, Drake as a person is just totally. the pop star rapper. And so I think what Doja does really, really well on Hot Pink is that she is occupying both of those spaces of those types of totally. songs that I love mm-hmm. where it's like, right. I loved anything that was a rapper featuring an R&B singer. Right. And she's both. And she's doing both. She's playing both roles and it's that balance that you're talking about where she doesn't have to call in someone else to do the rapping while she does the singing she doesn't have to call someone else to sing while she raps and even later with kiss me more and says like that's the big collaboration they want to grammy for that collaboration but it's not like she's competing with says as a singer on that song it's not her having to quote-unquote defend her territory on a song in the way that we hear a lot of artists have to do when they invite other people into the creative space mm. she was manning so many different things on her own that I think it strengthened her skill set to the point that she doesn't have to have that competitive edge of look what I can do. It doesn't feel like she's showing off a skill set in a way. It just is like that is how she seamlessly weaves in and out of sounds and sonics and music and it's on clear display on here. Right. And that's also that balance between the sharp virtuosity and the nonchalance. I mean, there's a certain even sense of burnout on a song like Rules. There's a feeling of sort of encapsulating the general feeling of burnout that I think permeates through the ether in our current culture and definitely in that generation, but yet funneled through a lot of sharp and skilled writing. And I think you're so right. She can at one point almost sound like she's Kendrick Lamar in a ferocious rap verse, and then also circle around these very catchy and hooky little turns of phrases. Play with my pussy, but don't play with my emotions. She's got massive pop instinct at the same time as she's got rapping virtuosity. And it's fascinating to see her shift modes between those two things within the course of a verse or within the course of one song. The last question I kind of wanted to ask you about the music on here in general is, do you feel like you ever get to know Doja or is the whole thing just an act of persona? That's one thing that I'm always curious about in thinking about Doja Cat's music. I think it's interesting because the way that she plays with genre, I think informs that because I think the songs that do feel more informative about her is something like Streets. That's the more alternative R&B adjacent kind of thing. And that's what she 
you expect from R&B songs. You expect an R&B song to be more revelatory in that sense than you would a big pop song like Say So. I'm not going to play Say So and think that I'm going to be like, oh, I'm learning so much about Doja Cat right now. No, right. Versus when I hear Streets, even if it's just as vague, even if you could change the production on it and it would sound different, I think the way that she delivers it, I think the lyrics don't have to be necessarily hyper-specific in order for it to have that sense to it. Because she's good at emoting as a singer. Exactly that. So the song we have not talked about yet is the biggest breakthrough hit of this record, which eventually becomes Doja's first number one, which is sort of this disco funk bobble in the style almost of Janet's All For You, Say So. What is happening on this song and what do you think of this song as Doja's really huge pop breakthrough moment? Does this showcase Doja in the most sort of effective way to you? What do you think about Say So as the most important breakthrough moment that Doja has in her career? I think Say So sets the stage for where we place Doja Cat in larger pop conversations and also in an archival sense, how we think about the end of 2019 into 2020. And obviously 2020, the pandemic being something that massively changed the way we think about and interact with music. I think the timing of this song having the impact that it did. Yeah, I don't think it had to be a song that showcased everything Doja can do at one time. She has songs where she more effectively shows that she raps and she sings and she has really great lyrics and really great attention to detail and a really strong musical sense. I don't think Say So needed to do all of that at once. I think it did its job in getting one bass covered really well instead of trying to cover five different bases at like a halfway point, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think also the TikTok element of the dance part of it, it felt very full circle into how we were introduced to Doja with Moo more collectively and to have her have this massive moment on TikTok. But it also was a time when there was nothing for anyone to do at all but to sit on TikTok for 20 hours a day and learn stupid dances. Totally. There's nothing else to do. You wake yeah. up in the morning, you open your phone, you go on TikTok. That was the pandemic for me. She didn't orchestrate that. She did not get on TikTok and say, everyone, please do this dance. She was, mm. to me, very much one of the musical pioneers in how we think about TikTok and how we think about the influence that TikTok can have on music. And I think people saw what happened with Say So and how that felt different than what happened with Ash Nico, for example, or any of those mid to late 2019 quote-unquote TikTok artists. Mm. And I think Doja was one of the first people to have a song that had so much capital in that space, but was not reliant on that space. It was just something that happened to have seeped into it. Mm. And I think she took the reins on it and regained that control over it in how she performed this song throughout 2020. Right. This is important. Because I think for anybody that had only known her as Moo, I think that was a very revelational thing to see her get up there and be this showman was very surprising and impressive. Yes. And I think it wasn't a song that had to do all of this extra work. I think the purpose that it served was that it was a song that could be shaped into all of these different things. One of the most generic songs on Pop Pink for sure. Yes. And she used that to her advantage. It was very much like, you remember when pop stars used to just 
perform anywhere. They had something yes. to promote. They were in a supermarket. Right. They were in a yeah. Walmart. Yeah. They were on the Today Show. They were everywhere. Yeah. They were on some escalators in an empty mall. Totally. It was giving that. She did the Grammys. She did the Billboard Music Awards. She did the VMA. She did a Vivo Lift Session. She did the YouTube Streamy Awards. Right. The best one, MTV EMAs. That's when she does the grunge rock version of Say So. That was incredible. She ate that. So bad. Very much giving Lady Gaga doing paparazzi at the VMAs. Totally. very integral performance and in how we think about Joja Cat as an artist. Right. And I think part of that was the fact that she was playing around with genres. She has this one song that people want to hear. They don't want to hear her sing anything else. They don't want to hear her rap anything else. Right. So she's going to have to keep performing this song. Yeah. And she does say later she got sick of it because obviously I also got sick of it. But... Yeah. yeah, it's really not one of my favorites, I have to say. No, I don't ever go out of my way to put it on, but it is a fun song. But watching her perform it was the thrill. That was another moment for me where I was like, what the fuck? I was like, the Moo Girl is a Janet-level dancer, performer, visual artist. I was like, this is truly making my head explode. That was my reaction to the Say So era. And I think it is that thing of she does have really strong roots to dancing that got lost yeah. when she was on this come up that was so focused on she's a rapper, she's a singer, she's this. And it was like, no, I have other things. And she, I think, as somebody who didn't want to pick which of those things got to be on display, she was someone like, I can make this work in a lot of different ways. Yeah, totally. And I think that was the really important part of that because it also created an excitement at a time when we don't really see pop performers care that much anymore. Exactly. We start to see more pop artists having that idea. You think about the biggest pop stars of 2019, like that was Billie Eilish's big year. Right. Billie Eilish is not getting on a stage with no dancers to do nothing. No. She's going to no. get up there. Vanessa's going to play the piano. She's going to sing. And it's going to be great. She's going to sound excellent. Mm -hmm. But that's her musical identity. And I think when we start seeing pop shift into that space of pop doesn't have to be big. And it's like, no, it doesn't have to, but it's really fun when it is. Yeah, she was like counter-programming in a weird way to that movement in pop, yeah. Yeah, I think Doja understood that it could be fun and that it was supposed to be something that was experienced and not just consumed and moved on from. I think she really wanted people to sit with what she was doing. And I think pay attention to the detail and to the influences and to the Janet of it all. It felt very, yeah. I know you haven't seen this in a minute, but I'm going to show you how this works kind of thing. Totally. To me, who loves that kind of performance, I continue to be thrilled. Someone's doing it. It's <laughs> so great to have that torch carried forward. My question for you is, obviously this record is a massive success. Say So goes number one, eventually has a Nicki Minaj remix, which I do not think we need to speak about. At all. <laughs> no, we're not talking. I'm putting the kibosh on that. The record ends up going two times platinum and really establishes Doja as a vanguard new pop sensation. I'm curious, before we move on to this last record we're going to talk about in this episode, which is Planet Her, which comes out in 2001, my question is, how is this record received in the pop community versus the rap world? We were talking about this and how Doja gets positioned as sort of somewhere in between and kind of unclassifiable. Is Doja respected as a rapper? Is she seen as a rapper post this music? How do you think about that? I think this was a point where more people started to ask themselves that question, mm. more so than that they were finding an answer to it then. I think this really kind of had people still in the middle. And then I think Planet Her is when we start actually answering the question more of where people right. feel like they land for her. Right. 
But I also think that it was one of those things where, especially with the impact that Say So had, that there wasn't really a song that blew up after this that was showing her as a rapper. Say So was the first massive song off of this record, but then Streets was the second big song from this record. And neither of those songs are, look at this really cool rapper. No. And so I don't think she really had a chance to make the rapper argument for herself. And to go back to Lil Nas X, people don't position Lil Nas X in conversations about rappers. He is a rapper though. He's honestly a rapper more than he's a singer. Totally. But it's still that thing of, I don't feel like this person is reflecting the ideologies or the traditional approach or what in a cultural aspect we think of the people in this space. Around this time, Roddy Rich is having a really big moment. baby is having a really big moment. And so we're looking at the crop of rappers that are coming up. Is someone going to put Doja Cat in conversation with them? Or are they going to put her in conversation with Dua Lipa? Are they going to put her in conversation with the other big pop stars of the early pandemic, essentially? Totally. And I don't think that we end up seeing her have to be. And I think you hear on Planet Her, her kind of staking that claim. Right. And it becomes a more touchy thing for her later that she is not being taken seriously in the context of rap music. I think it's the fact that she worked for it. The fact that it wasn't like, oh, I just enjoy rapping. I think it's The fact that she sat here and studied some of the most skilled rappers alive and modeled herself after them. And can hang with them. Yes. I think also important to mention the other main woman in rap coming up at this time is Megan Thee Stallion. Totally. Who's like a rapper's rapper. Exactly. And I think we had WAP and the Say So Nicki remix in the same year. And one of those was a major cultural moment. And the other one we are not even going to dedicate 30 (laughs) seconds to having a conversation about. I think it was one of those things where it probably irked her in a way that she wasn't hyper concerned about in the moment, but I think became more aware of the implications of later on. And I wonder if that's the function of interim singles like Best Friend, for example, being moments where she teamed up with Sweetie, who's obviously seen more primarily as a rapper and like where they are both. (laughs) I wish this wasn't an audio medium and you could have seen Larissa's face when I said that, but I mean, whatever, quality of Sweetie's (laughs) rapping abilities aside. Sweetie is a VMA's red carpet host. And not a good one, but she's very, very gorgeous. She was not good. That was like, anyway, but it is a song where Doja raps more and clearly that's positioned as a collaborative rap track between two women. She's so bad that I just can't take that bitch nowhere. She off her fish. I said, mm-mm, don't go there. Bitch, break her back. She protect and attack. Get that strap. Let them buckle. Foot on neck. Give no air. I wonder if that was part of the function of songs like that for Doja following Hot Pink. Yeah, I think it's like I mentioned earlier when she's occupying both spaces on a song as the rapper and the singer, I think you look at her records the collaborations on her record function very differently than when she appears on someone else's music mm-hmm. she has a really strong collaborative track record i was thinking about this earlier when we we're talking about the space that she occupies and not having to really compete on those spaces you heard that song she has with lil wayne shimmy yeah i think that song is so fun but it's such a waste of doja mm. to only have her on a hook and it's very giant male figure in rap to not properly share that space with her totally yeah, shimmy, shimmy, yeah, shimmy, yeah, come on, give it to me i'm gonna make it Clap, 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 
why does Jack Harlow get to rap next to you and Doja Cat has to sing a hook? Right. It's that thing of how do we think about Doja's positioning and who she can hang with and who she can occupy spaces with. And I do think because she is such an eccentric artist and there's so much going on, it's really hard to place her in any of those spaces. And I think her peers have a hard time placing her in those spaces as well. Clearly. Especially of the older generation, like Little Wayne is. Especially of a generation where these things were more bifurcated. Yeah, and then you think about Cardi and Megan having such a strong collaborative relationship. Obviously, we're past the conversation of, you know, female rappers, da, 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 that none of that matters anymore. They're all killing it. They all have this very collaborative space with one another. But you don't really see Doja as a celebrity in those kind of spaces in that sense she's not posting on instagram hanging out with a bunch of other rappers the community aspect of that i think is missing and i think it complicates how she functions alongside her peers we put her in conversation with and who her collaborators are and i think we see she's on the Lil Nas X album but megan the stallion is also on that album and i think those are collaborations that made a lot of sense that doja and Lil Nas X song should have been massive should have been Everywhere Scoop was a perfect song. She's so good on it. She's so funny. Tomorrow is my day off. All them rehearsals got me tight. Look at the payoff. And now my body look like something you need take off. I just got my veneers out. Bitches wanna rip they face off. But you thought you'd have a chance after you. And it is one of the only collaborations she has where it feels like she was just having fun and playing the role of Doja, where when we hear her on other people's songs most of the time, it's very much playing this role of I'm this artist with this skill set and I'm going to put that on display for you. And I think it tones down mm. the Doja of it all a lot of time. And I think that Lil Nas X collaboration was one of the only times that we hear her not toning it down for anything because she didn't have to. She was with someone who could match that. And it didn't become a thing of I'm going to overshadow this person on their own song. Mm. It became a thing of we are both similar artists who understand our craft in a similar way. How can we maximize that? And I think that was really accomplished on that song in a way that is so underrated mm. and sucks that it wasn't, you know, mm. a bigger moment than it was. But I do think it was an interesting thing to think about in the sense of who do we put Doja in conversation with? How does she interact with them? How does she perform alongside them? Well, it's really interesting that you're saying that too, because I think that's an interesting entree to Planet Her, her third studio album. It came out in 2021. And I think when she invites other singers and rappers into her space, she actually is a very apt collaborator. I mean, the lead single mm -hmm. is the song Kiss Me More, which is kind of like a sequel disco funk number to say so, but I think a better song that sees her going toe to toe with SZA as a scat singing R&B <laughs> adjacent disco queen. And a lot of songs on this record, like the song Payday with Young Thug, where she can out Young Thug, Young Thug. I don't need it, I got it already. Tell me what you want. Uh, what to what I got you, baby. Yeah. Uh, I just keep dripping like a fucking mummy. Yeah. Drop a penny, keep a smile on their face. Yeah. Or she gets on I Don't Do Drugs with Ariana Grande, and she can do Ariana's spacey, singy thing. Like being trapped, more like 
Like she is actually able to meet other stars and kind of do their thing without losing her dojiness in really adept and effective ways throughout Planet Hers. And The Weeknd, I mean, the second single you write is the Quiet Storm 90s R&B homage and she can do that emotive late night sort of purring, yearning, sexual candlelit vibe as well. It's interesting to think about the fact that maybe she hasn't been utilized as a feature as well because I think Planet Her is a great showcase for the way that Doja can meet other artists or have other artists enter her space, not lose her identity, but also do their thing at the same time, that versatility. Like you're saying, Doja does meet her collaborators kind of where they are. Yeah. And it is the fact that she is such a malleable performer because she can do all of those things. It's not like she's trying to meet someone somewhere and she's struggling to keep herself in a certain realm from track to track on this album. I'm glad you mentioned Payday. I love Payday. It's so good. That's such a fun song, but it also is one of those songs that the first time I listened to this album, I wasn't like, oh my God, about. I remember the first time listening through Planet Her thinking there's a lot going on here. Oh yeah. I remember that being when I first thought it <laughs> felt very crowded to me. Yeah. But I think when I revisited it and kind of sectioned it off into Joja being the different versions of herself. Yes. It was a lot more easy to digest because it gives you whiplash that first time. There's just so many sounds happening. In like 40 minutes of music. <laughs> yes. And then even the collaborations, having Ariana Grande on I Don't Do Drugs, it's a fun song, but it's also just like, okay, you wonder about the conversations that went into making these and how much of this was Doja being like, I really want a song with Ariana Grande and I want it to sound like this. I wonder about that part of it, of how much of it is, how does she decide who she wants to collaborate with? And the features on this record, I think are really telling of what's on her radar and what's interesting to her at that point in time, because this is 2021. This is post Ariana's positions era. She was on the 3435 remix, right. which again, something that was just fine, but she was also right. on motive. So this is someone that she has built a collaborative relationship with over a period of time. This wasn't just someone that randomly dropped in and it worked out. And so I think that part of it is interesting in the sense that these are the people that she chose to especially at this point in time when there's so many eyes on her as compared to the collaborators we see on Hot Pink, Gucci Mane and Tyga. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that in some ways this is the ultimate showcase for the kaleidoscopic versatility of Doja. This is far and away my favorite Doja project. Pretty much every song on this record is great. And I think that at the same time, I agree with your statement of how overpacked it feels and yet it gets away with it, I think, because the songs are compact and short at the same time. Yeah. And she is so good at all these modes. I mean, it's like you open this record and she can do Woman, which is an Afrobeat, sultry, almost Rihanna-esque, moody, seductive, alluring song. And then two seconds later, she's doing Young Thug and then we're getting Get Into It, Yo, which is the early Nicki homage, probably my favorite song on the record. Yeah, you just wanna party, you just wanna lap dance, you just wanna pop up on these pants like you the Batman, you just wanna ball out in designer with your best friends, you don't wanna talk no more about it in the past tense. Hilarious, incredible phrasing from that staccato kind of like, it, get it, get, that whole thing. I mean, she's <laughs> so clever in that way into Need to Know, which is like a trap pop oozing sexual desire, super hooky, incredible melody, chorus driven pop R&B song. Wanna know what it's like, 
There's just so much happening, and yet it all feels held together by her virtuosity, her skill, and her versatility. It's a really impressive album, but it does make me wonder, is she doing too much? To me, the thing that's so interesting about Planet Her is I love all of these songs, and yet somehow it feels like you never get closer to like what maybe the essence of Doja Cat is, what the idea is here besides just an utter showcase for everything that she can do. I wonder how you think about that idea. My brain, when this came out, went to a couple of things, which was, and this is going to sound crazy, but I always put Ed Sheeran in The weekend in conversation with each other in my brain. That doesn't sound crazy to me at all. It makes a lot of sense. When Ed Sheeran put out Castle on the Hill and Shape of You at the same time, right? it felt like I'm giving you a choice, pick one, and that's the path we're going to go. It felt very fork in the road. And then in 2020, The weekend does the same thing. Right. It's Heartless and Blinding Lights. Yeah. Blinding Lights was the path. And so to me, this album felt like that on a mass scale. Totally. There are two separate roads here. Which one are we going to go down? And people went down the pop road. They wanted Doja as pop star, Doja as someone who can share the space with The weekend, share the space with SZA, but also develop these fun pop moments. And the rap songs are very fun. The rap songs are very pop, but it, again, is not helping her case in the conversation conversation about what is she doing? Is she in conversation with how we're going to remember this era of rap music or whatever the case may be? Do we need to know the answer to that though? Why does she have to choose one? I think functionally, no. Right. I don't think it actually matters, but I do think the discourse around artists, it's still meaningful to that. Right. But I don't think that's meaningful to Doja or I don't think she wants it to be. But then I think about last year, she is going on one of these Twitter rants that she goes on. Right. And she basically denounces everything that she's been doing up until this point. She calls her pop songs cash grabs. Right. She berates her fans for falling for them. <laughs> That's what I was mentioning earlier, where it's just like Doja doesn't get pissed off about a lot of things, but the things that do push her buttons are really telling. She was in a tweet storm one day and she was just like, I know my raps aren't that good. My next album is going to do this and it's going to do this and it's going to do this. And that's the things that's really grinding at her mm. is this genre conversation, which we say all the time and can recognize all the time has no functional value mm. beyond what Grammy category you're going to be nominated in or something. It's not something that really means anything. Yeah. But it is something where I think because she does hold such skilled artists as her influences, yeah. she wants to be able to run with the big dogs. With the big rap dogs. Yes. I mean, the thing that Planet Her showcases for me is she's a pop tactician. I mean, it's almost like a stylistic masterpiece in the sense of her versatility. The amount of modes that she can do well, I swear to God, I like literally nearly every song on this album, which is so incredible to say when you think about a record that does so much and is trying so much. I don't know if I can think of other albums that are this all over the place that feel so enjoyable to listen to at the same time. And it brings up a broader question that I think is maybe interesting also like in terms of where this all might be going on this new record, which is mm -hmm. obviously Planet Her is incredibly successful and I think will go down as an emblematic album of its time period because of that polyglot aesthetic and her ability to pull that off. But it, I think maybe as the 
the end point or a solidifying point in the question about Doja Cat, which is up to this point, I view Doja Cat as somebody that's incredibly eccentric and wild and the funneling of that into this sort of glistening pop music. And to me, I use that term to encompass a song like Get Into It Yet Too. Even the rap songs are still Mm -hmm. shiny pop songs. Yeah, it's very 2008 Lil Wayne. 100%. That's been the formula so far and it's worked very, very well for her. I think at the end of the day though, she's still kind of opaque and I don't know if I totally know who she is. She's slippery, she's contradictory. Even when she sings emotively like on a Love to Dream or on a Need to Know or You Write, you get the sense that they're stylistic exercises for her more so than they're actually revelations. She can do that, she can emote, she can show emotion, but it still feels like it's stylistic and it's not like you get to know the inner workings of what she is and who she is aside from like a technician. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, is this next era as it's rolled out for you? We've had three songs. By the time this episode comes out, the album will have come out so people will know. But in terms of what we need next from Doja, do you want to know her better? And if so, how would we get to that point? Is that about her letting the eccentricities of her personality be reflected more in the production and the music that she chooses? Would it be about making music that is more personal? What do you want from her that you haven't gotten yet, if there is anything? Mm. I don't know that I want to know Doja on a deeper level than I do through this music, just on the basis of what I know about her through everything else around her music. Yeah. As a pop fan, it's not crucial. You know what I mean? I think the fact that the music is so well-crafted and it's so technical and that she has such a drive to pay attention to the details of it, I think that tells me more about Doja Cat than anything that she could get on a song and say. Mm. I think her lyrical development has been fun and interesting to watch. I think especially when Planet Her was first being rolled out, I remember the Ain't Shit teaser coming out and that was all kind of hint, hint, nudge, nudge at a comment that Nas made about her genre placement in the original abbreviation for the song was NAS. Right. And then when it came out, it was just ancient. But I think Doja's not in a strong position currently to have her personhood be at the forefront of her music. I think she has benefited largely from keeping those two things away from each other. Mm. And I think it could be cataclysmic if she combined them. I think it would be bad. Not like it would sound bad. I think it would make it harder for people to keep those two things separate. And I think the whole separating art from artists thing, it's not that necessarily because you really can't do that. It's not a thing to be like, well, this is the person singing these songs and this is the other person. It's all one person. Mm. But I think when we look at the lead singles going into Scarlet have been more self-reflective, more look at me, look at me. She's rapping about what people are saying about her online. Right. If she's going to rap about her life, we have to think about what her life looks like. Her life looks like arguing with people on Twitter. I don't want to hear that. I don't (laughs) want to hear you arguing with Scarlet Rose Doja Cat fan account 295. That's not interesting to me. I think it's interesting in how we think about what pushes Doja's buttons and what's important to her and how she wants her legacy to be established. I think that's interesting with any artist when you're thinking about how their legacy is going to be established. But I think if there is more to the story that would be interesting to hear, she hasn't revealed enough about herself up to this point for me to know that I want to hear it. Mm -hmm. And so I think 
for the conversation around your artistry to be, this is going to fizzle out, this isn't going to last, that happens around most artists right now, because it is really hard for artists to sustain careers now in the way that we don't have pop stars that stick around for as long as we used to. Mm -hmm. We don't have people who are having five, six eras within a decade or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And so it is a conversation, but it can't become your entire artistic identity to be like, people are being mean to me. The underdog narrative. <laughs> Drake still runs with the underdog narrative, and he's one of the biggest rappers ever. Taylor Swift does the same thing. Taylor's not anyone's underdog. Right. And I think it is very easy for artists who come up in this space now where it is so hard to stay afloat to capitalize on that narrative, to weaponize that narrative. And Doja has spoken about that multiple times in the past where she'll be like, I'll have people who think I can't do something and then I do it. And I'm like, I just want to rub it in their face. I'm going to go to Times Square and stand in front of a billboard with my face on it. And that's going to be a fuck you to everyone who said that I couldn't do this before kind of thing. And I think there's value to that to an extent. But if that's the only conflict in your music, if that's the only personable element of your music, she still has that ideology. I don't have to explain myself to you. She's told her fans, I never asked you to support me. So you threatening to pull your support doesn't mean anything to me. Mm -hmm. That conflict, I don't want to hear her address that in music necessarily because it isn't something that is artistically beneficial to her. It is not changing how you interact with what her music sounds like or what her music feels like. It interacts with how you approach her music. It's her as a figure versus her as an artist. And so mm. she's not going to address all of that on the music. But then I do have to sit up here and read and write about her fighting with her fans and the parts of herself that she does keep private and her trying to gain back some of that privacy that she gave away early in her career in order to get to this place. I think it was a lot harder to foresee where she possibly could go. I think she's very good at her craft. I think she's getting better at her craft on every album. I think the rapping's getting better. I think the lyrics are getting better. But it is a thing of what else are we going to talk about? Yeah, usually for pop stars, that means getting more revelational. I mean, that tends to be the track that once you reach a stylistic apex, the idea becomes... How do I keep you intrigued by engaging with new layers of my persona and my personality and the depths of my emotional being? Right. That tends to be what most pop stars need to do at this point in their career. I mean, the one thing that I want to just add in is maybe she can do that effectively. Stars surprise you in this way. But I think one thing that would be interesting and one thing that I think maybe the new music is pointing to is exploding the confines of the shiny Dr. Luke and Dr. Luke style production to allow the music to reflect her eccentricity more than it has before. I think that's something that I would be interested in hearing. And I think we are hearing that to some degree on her new music. I mean, the music does sound different than the previous formula of the post-juicy Doja Cat music. That's what I'm most interested in hearing. Because I think we have yet to hear Doja Cat music where she lets the stitches unfurl a little bit and it sounds as wild and zany as she does. And I think that that could be an interesting aesthetic thing that I'm interested in knowing what that would sound like. All right, so let's talk about the Pop Pantheon. Where do you see Doja Cat currently fitting into the Pop Pantheon? Oh, I think she's very easily in tier three. Yeah. I knew this was not going to be a debate. It was not going to be difficult. No. I think tier three, and I think what remains to be seen is which subset of tier three that is. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, she's clearly in that era where we're in the first six to eight years of her career. She's currently enjoying a sustained stream of massive hits, albums, songs, etc. And if she releases a new single, it's kind of in that imperial moment where it gets a lot of attention and it seems to be a hit. And she's at the center of the current 
current pop cultural conversation. If you were going to name the five most central pop stars of the current generation, I feel like you would probably name her as one of them. Yes, for sure. So I agree. Unfortunately, this is not a very interesting debate between the two of us, but I think (laughs) whether she stays in three at all, I think is still something that we could see transpiring over the next few years. But right now that seems to be exactly where we should put her in the pantheon. Yeah, I think it's fitting. Yeah, I think so too. My last question for you is, what is an underrated Doja Cat song that we could send the show out on? Maybe something we haven't talked about so far. I mean, is there anything that you want to highlight of Doja Cats that people maybe are less familiar with that we could send the show out on? We didn't talk about it and it's not like the Doja Cat song, but I get my life to it every single time. Boss Bitch. Oh yeah, Boss Bitch. I don't know how we've been talking about it. Okay, there's no question we got to go out on Boss Bitch. That is the song. The fact that she could get on a soundtrack and still have it be so Doja. Yeah. It's so good. I agree. Boss Bitch is that bitch. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> All right, so let's go out on Boss Bitch. Larissa Paul, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a bitch. I'm a boss. I'm a bitch and a boss. I'm a shine like yours. I'm a bitch. I'm a boss. I'm a bitch and a boss. I'm a shine like yours. I'm a bitch. I'm a boss. I'm a bitch and a boss. I'm a shine like yours. I'm a bitch. I'm a boss. All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon Doja Cat, a certified tier three superstar. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so, so much to the fabulous Larissa Paul for being such a great guest. And of course, to my main man, Russ Martin, for everything he does to make the show happen every week. To Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. And to PJ Brunetti for his help editing this episode. Don't forget, if you want to hear us talking about Scarlet, myself and Rawia Khmer, you can subscribe to our Patreon channel at Patreon com slash pop pantheon where that episode is out right now don't forget to rate review and subscribe to pop pantheon wherever you get your podcast we're on social media at pop pantheon pod i'm at dj l-o-u-i-e-x-i-v on twitter and instagram merch at poppantheonpod.com gorgeous gorgeous la tomorrow september 29th gorgeous gorgeous new york halloween edition october 27th pop pantheon live november 2nd at the crawford in pasadena and until we meet again everybody have a fabulous life bye bye I'm a bitch and I boss, I'm a shine like glass, I'm a bitch. I'm a boss, I'm a bitch and I boss, I'm a shine like glass.